I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Since 2020, there have been more than 2,100 drug overdose deaths in San Francisco. In January of this year alone, the death toll was 78. The fatalities have been driven by fentanyl, a deadly opioid that's being peddled by drug dealers on city streets. Open-air drug dealing and drug use have been a persistent problem for San Francisco, one that's motivated some city leaders to call for a more aggressive approach to prosecutions. That was a pledge made by Brooke Jenkins, the district attorney who took office last July after a historic recall election. But defense attorneys for people accused of dealing drugs in San Francisco are testing a new approach. They're arguing to juries that their clients shouldn't be found guilty because they're the victims of a crime. Today on Fifth Emission, another angle of the city's deadly drug epidemic. Public defenders say street-level drug dealers are being trafficked and forced to sell drugs under fear of violence from cartels and coyotes. Many of them are immigrants from Central America with thousands of dollars of debt that they must pay, or they or their families face violent retribution. Juries in San Francisco have weighed in on this claim in two recent separate trials, and Chronicle reporter Megan Cassidy is here to break it down for us. Megan, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Megan, the argument that some drug dealers on San Francisco streets are human trafficking victims have long circulated progressive circles. Why is this only now surfacing in trials? So I think that there are a few reasons. One is the the California law that allows this to be legal defense is kind of new. It was enacted in 2016, amended in 2019. This law specifically states that a defendant that is accused of a crime can say as a defense that he or she was trafficked. The law doesn't apply to violent felonies, but what it means is that if you, as a defendant, you're able to convince a jury that you broke the law because you were forced to by someone else, you should be found not guilty. But also, like you mentioned, San Francisco sees a lot of drug cases and has seen a lot of drug cases. And this theory that some dealers have been trafficked has been publicly cited by the city's progressive flank for quite a while now. But I think one reason that we're just starting to see it pop up in trials is because of the reality of the legal system. Most drug cases will settle with plea deals. And But also because the new district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, in general isn't offering as many plea deals that are as attractive to defendants as were offered by her predecessor, Chase Boudin, this could be the reason why a lot of people are saying, hey, no, I don't like this plea deal. I'm just going to go ahead and take this case to trial. So what you're describing here, this argument that's being made at trials— It's describing human trafficking, which many of us associate with things like prostitution. How exactly does it work with the drug trade? What kind of threats were the defendants on recent trials facing? The legal definition of trafficking is being forced to do something, whether it's commit a crime or to work, because of force, fraud, or coercion. The defendants in this case made a few claims. One was that they were tricked into coming to the Bay Area by coyotes, who are the people that will shuttle them across the border into the U.S., and by Mexican cartels, whom the coyotes were presumably working for. And they they say that they were tricked because the coyotes told them in Honduras that they could get legal labor in the Bay Area. They believe that they could do 
some legal job once in the Bay Area, like construction, demolition, painting. But then they said that once they got here, they found out that they would be selling drugs instead. And both of these men said that they owed the coyotes thousands of dollars for helping them to cross the border and that the coyotes were threatening them and their families back in Honduras if this money wasn't paid back quickly. And why is there this sort of culture of silence, as some expert witnesses explained in one of these trials? So the trafficking expert that was called to the stand said that in Central America, especially where these two defendants are from, you know, there's a lot of corruption in the government, including in the police ranks, and that there's really just no trust in authority figures. And so this testimony was really important for the defense because the two defendants really didn't have any physical evidence that they presented to back up their claims. They didn't have, let's say, reports that they made to police claiming that they had been trafficked. They didn't say it to probation officers. What the trafficking expert was saying about this culture of silence was very important for the defense and to convince jurors that, like, there is a reason why there isn't going to be any backup evidence. And so on the other side of this, what was the counter argument that prosecutors made when it came to the pressures that defendants were facing? The prosecutors relied heavily on evidence that showed that the defendants had, you know, at least some amount of cash at their disposal, which is meant to undercut the claim that they weren't able to pay off their debts. One of them had a $6,000 car. Another had about $3,000 that was found in his home. So the argument here is, well, if you already have this chunk of money, couldn't you have used that to pay back your coyote or, or the cartel. And then they also pointed out the level of autonomy that the men had. They were able to, for instance, move around as they please, drive in their car, they owned phones, they were in contact with their families. And these are all the types of freedoms that we usually don't associate with a trafficking victim. More with Chronicle reporter Megan Cassidy after a quick break. She'll explain how the arguments in these cases might affect future drug prosecution trials. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Megan Cassidy, District Attorney Brooke Jenkins has been in favor of more aggressive prosecution when it comes to people suspected of dealing drugs in San Francisco. What has she said about these human trafficking claims? Jenkins doesn't, frankly, buy the trafficking claim. She has said that if you are in a drug dealing organization, there are going to be higher ups that are pressuring you to sell these drugs, to make them the money. But what they don't care about is how you make the money, just the fact that they were paid. And then she also compares it to legal debts. If you, say, take out a loan from a bank and you don't pay that back, there are going to be consequences for that. And that's not trafficking. That is just the way the world works. And so what she is saying is that owing a debt even under the threat of violence, does not equal trafficking. And that's quite a 
different stance than her predecessor, Chesa Boudin, right? It is, yes. So Chesa Boudin actually spoke about this topic specifically from his time as a public defender. He knows that many of them have been trafficked. And he held up this argument to talk about why drug defendants should be afforded at least some considerations for a plea deal that would protect them from deportation. And his office did this a lot for people who were accused of drug dealing. A lot of them pleaded out to a charge of accessory after the fact. That conviction is not a what's called a deportation-eligible conviction. Whereas if you are convicted of a drug sales, you could technically be deported because of that. Now, we all know that San Francisco is a sanctuary city. The likelihood of being deported from San Francisco is very unlikely because the city doesn't work with immigration agents. But if, for instance, you have this deportation-eligible conviction on your record, you maybe run into the law in another jurisdiction, it would be easier to initiate deportation proceedings then. And so what were the outcomes of these two trials that you're describing here, Megan? Both of them ended in mistrials. So the juries really couldn't come up with a unanimous verdict on either. In the first trial, nine jurors voted for not guilty, two for guilty. And then in the January trial, the breakdown was almost exactly flipped with nine jurors voting for guilty and three for not guilty. And since then, prosecutors have decided they are not going to retry these cases, meaning that the charges will be dismissed. So hung juries in both cases. And Megan, you spoke to one of the public defenders in the trials, Sierra Villaran. What did she observe of how juries considered the defense's trafficking argument? So she told me that she felt that their argument was sound. But she also knows how fed up a lot of San Franciscans are with the city's open-air drug market, with the misery and the crime that comes with it. And, you know, potentially some of the San Francisco jurors have had their own experiences with addiction or a family member that had experienced addiction. So she said she expected people to vote not guilty, but to not really feel good about it. And she said she was surprised by the outcoming of support from them after the trial, though. This is presumably from the jurors who voted not guilty. But she said that they have repeatedly asked if there's anything they can do to help the defendant. And they've called and they have asked for updates on his well-being. And she said that that was a really big surprise for her. Okay, so some surprising empathy there from the trial's jury. At the same time, though, Megan, San Francisco is having this really politicized debate over what's the best way to respond to the drug crisis. Broadly, one side is for more punishment, while the other is about addressing root causes. Will these trials have any implications for future drug prosecutions? I think they definitely do. These cases were basically wins for the defense. And I think that if we see more cases go to trial in the near future, this defense will be used again. Logistically, though, the public defender's office has said that their clients, by taking the stand in open court, took what they felt was a great risk to their safety. And that other defendants, while maybe they do have allegations of trafficking, they may not want to take that risk. And on the prosecutor's side, I think that these arguments in these last two trials came as a bit of a surprise. 
And I would expect in future drug trials about gathering evidence about the defendant's finances, phone records, etc., that they feel could refute these claims. Well, fascinating story and reporting. Megan Cassidy, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me. Megan Cassidy covers law enforcement and crime in San Francisco for The Chronicle. Her story about drug dealing and human trafficking is online now at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. Thank you to Gary Baca for editing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs> 